would make me you know valuable to a buyer i refer to it as what i call the big 3 in 1 and what i mean by that is before you start focusing on a lot of things that can become distracting recognize that the three primary drivers of your valuation to an amazon when you want to sell your amazon business is going to be first You're listening to the Ecom Exits Podcast with your host, Nate Ginsberg. Learn the best tips and tactics to improve profits, cash flow, and maximize your e-commerce business value on the way to a successful exit. Welcome to the show. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the Ecom Exit Show. It's your host, Nate Ginsberg, joined today by Scott Dietz, founder of Northbound Group, which helps... Amazon and other e-commerce businesses exit for seven or even eight figures. Really excited to have Scott on the show to find out all the different ways that he is helping sellers uh, achieve their successful exits. So Scott, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. So first, can you explain to the listeners, so what is Northbound or how, how do you describe what you do at Northbound? Yeah, I founded Northbound Group about three or four years ago. Prior to that, when I exited my first company, I tried to do it myself, um, found out that I didn't know what I was doing. I then brought in a team of advisors that uh, showed me how to do it correctly and ended up getting three times the price uh, that I had gotten from a previous buyer that walked away. So I went from kind of my worst day losing a deal to my best day going, oh, wow, this is <laughs> this is really important. So that became the first point in my life where I said, you know what, you work so hard to build up a successful business. And one of the things that we always say is that for a lot of Amazon businesses, more than half of the money you ever put in your own pocket from your Amazon or e-commerce business is going to come on the day that you exit because while you're running it, you're growing it, you're trying to increase the inventory levels or what you know, whatever that needs to be. And so you have to really think about this process strategically. I started up an Amazon business. I was an ASM3 uh, member, just as you know, kind of something to learn a new uh, industry. And I started Northbound Group about three, three and a half years ago, really with the intent to help Amazon sellers understand their valuation before they decide to exit understand what a buyer would really value and then sort of strategically plan for that exit as opposed to running a business and then getting bored and then deciding that that was the time to exit because oftentimes uh, that's a little bit too late <laughs> in the process. So mm -hmm. um, so my passion is helping sellers, you know, achieve life-changing, you know, exits and our firm uh, is about 14 people and we wake up every day trying to think about how can we, you know, help maximize the valuation of our clients and then help help them achieve exits. Man, well, that's a lot of cool stuff there and a lot of kind of important things that you, that you mentioned that I, that I want to highlight. And, and one is around the exit event being a, a lot of times 50% of the income that you as the you know, founder, owner of the business get. And, and yeah, because I mean, you know, I know I've had my own e-commerce businesses and they're expensive, <laughs> expensive to grow. You know, I've been there where the business was growing month over month, but like the money in my bank account wasn't. And when the money grew the most in my bank account from the exit, it's important. And, and I know there's stuff that sellers can do prior to the exit to really maximize what they get from that event. 
you first started the sale process and it ended up falling through and then ended up getting a buyer later at 3x the price. And so that's that's pretty significant. <laughs> and so what changed with, with your deal or, or what things did those advisors kind of bring to the table and show you that allowed you to increase the valuation so much? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the core thing, if I was to boil it down to its uh, simplest essence, was they helped me, my mentor always used to say the phrase, you have to remember, Scott, it's not what the seller's selling, it's what the buyer's buying. And as Amazon sellers, we know that every day about our listings, you know, uh, we, we, we wrote our first listing when we got into this with a whole bunch of stuff that mattered to us. And then somewhere along the line, somebody showed us that if you really phrase your Amazon listings in the needs and wants and desires of the customer, uh, you know, that the conversion rate went up. It's the same process with a buyer. And so what they helped show me was what do buyers really value in a business and then put your effort as a owner of a business toward achieving better metrics across those valuation criteria. And, and frankly, for the CEO or owner of a business, it means oftentimes getting out of a lot of the stuff that you're doing today that really doesn't add a lot of value. So for example, when we talk with Amazon sellers uh, and they say, you know, you know, what, what would make me you know, valuable to a buyer? I refer to it as what I call the big three in one. And what I mean by that is before you start focusing on a lot of things that can become distracting, acting, recognize that the three primary drivers of your valuation to an Amazon, when you want to sell your Amazon business, is going to be first, your profit margin after all expenses. And for most companies, uh, the buyers are going to want, unless you're a very large seller, they're going to want margins in excess of 20%. And so if you're not achieving that, you you need to look at your, you know, your P&L, your income statement and understand where am I going wrong? Is my cost of goods in relation to my sales price too low on my current products and maybe I need to get new products? Am I spending too much on uh, shipping or am I spending too much on ads? All of those things, but that's the first criteria. The second one would be the growth rate. Um, am I growing fast enough? And in this market, year, it's called year over year growth. How much is your March of 2020 an increase over March of, two, of 2019? Um, and if that's not 20%, or better, then you're considered a flat company and you won't get as high a valuation. And then the third one is actually just the size of the earnings. The bigger the earnings, the higher the multiple. And, and so, you know, there's different gradients to that that we could get into if, if we needed to later. But the concept is the bigger the size of the earnings um, uh, of profit, not, not revenue, but profit, the, the more your valuation is. And then the and one is your risk, your diversification. Uh, is what we call it. So if you have a million dollars of profit, but you have it all in one skew, you know, one uh, big hero product, you are not very diversified and that's going to hurt your valuation. So the, the gold standard for that is we like to see that no revenue more than 10% is coming from one 
you know, ASIN or SKU. And for a lot of people, we know that that's not reality. They may have 30 or 40%. But just, I think the biggest thing that helped me get the highest value for my company was a team of outside people coming in and looking at it and going, these are the big four things that matter. And if you're doing something that leads to one of those four things, great. If you're doing something that doesn't, then really see whether or not it deserves your time. Yeah, really, really valuable insight. And I know a lot of people, to be honest, myself included, a lot of times with business, you know, it's, it's easy to stay busy. It's, it's harder always to work on the things that move the needle. And like, we all get caught up with different things. And that's like why I think it's, it's so valuable and important, like you said, to get those, um, you know, outside eyes and outside perspective to really help you uh, stay on track and align you for what really matters and and what's going to move the needle. So, you know, when do you and Northbound Group usually start to engage with a business or at what point in their, in the business life cycle or what sort of a timeline with regards to, you know, their eventual exit does Northbound Group usually start to get involved? Yeah, um, we cover the full range in, in this sense. We, we have certain individuals that have said to us, I want to build it right from day one. And I'd like you to help me with everything from, you know, bringing two partners together or, or three partners. We just completed a, um, uh, a merger of, you know, three partners coming together with a capital raise, you know, in a, in a true startup. Uh, and then on the other side of things, we've had people say, got a letter of intent um, uh, from a buyer in hand, but I want you to help me negotiate better terms and then help me through the agreement process. So we do kind of cover that whole range. I think the, the the midpoint of that is that generally 12 to 24 months before an exit, before you're thinking of selling a business, there are certain things that you could be building toward that will lead to you to have a higher valuation when you quote unquote, get to the finish line. And so if you're out there and you wonder how businesses value Amazon businesses, we can discuss that. But the way they calculate it a lot of times is on what's called your trailing 12 months earnings. And specifically, they call it seller's discretionary earnings. So it kind of stands to reason that if they're going to look at your past year's books, that the more you can be doing in the year before you sell to optimize your books, the better your valuation can be. So I would say, you know, in general, it's not uncommon for us at all to start with clients, you know, a year before they're thinking of selling to really set themselves up to get a premium valuation. Makes sense. And I'm aware as well that these businesses are generally valued on the trailing 12 months. And so getting involved before then or around that time is going to you know, lead to the, the biggest impact. And so walk us through your process a little bit of like, all right, you know, I've got my FBA or e-commerce business and I'm looking at an exit and interested in working with you guys, like, you know, where do you start or what are some of the first things that, that you guys look at? Or So what we've done, and my background is in software. So everything I think about, I think about as, as sort of a software or a system process. So what we have built in essence is a valuation modeling system. So, you know, over the last three years working uh, with Amazon sellers, we've kind of seen a lot of different things that buyers value or they don't value. And we've 
compiled all that into a valuation system. So the first thing we do is we get the necessary information uh, regarding our clients uh, and we say, okay, let's take a look first of all at your product profitability. Let's analyze your ad costs. Let's analyze your uh, your actual books, um, uh, you know, from uh, you know QuickBooks or Zero or wherever it happens to be. Um, and usually, as a sub part of that, we have to work with bookkeeping firms or other financial firms. You know, we say, okay, let's get these on what's called an accrual basis because a lot of people haven't maybe taken that step. But once we've got that, I, I would call that sort of pillar number one. We know where you've been. The second pillar that we spend a lot of time doing, which we we don't find oftentimes sellers maybe have done on their own, is we build a very detailed forecast of what their business could achieve if they didn't have any constraints like capital constraints, you know, um, and or team or those types of things. We want to understand what's the potential of the business. And then we want to back off that forecast for, you know, I'll call it the reality of today. And and the reason that that step of the forecasting is, is so important is because there's two big questions you'll never be able to answer if you don't have an accurate forecast. I'm not talking about a forecast for next week. I'm literally talking about a forecast for the next one, two, and three years. Is the, the first question is if there is no cash flow planning without forecasting. So unless you have a very good understanding of your forecasted numbers, you really can't plan your cash flow of how much inventory that you need to plan. And then the second thing is, is until you understand what the future potential of the business is, you'll never be able to feel confident that you can answer the question, when is the right time to sell? And and the reason for that is, let's say I'm making $200,000 a a year right now of profit, but my growth rate is such that I'm going to triple my profits within the next year and I'll be making 600,000 within one year's time. And let's for right now assume that you really believe that, that you've got a whole bunch of products in the pipeline. You have to kind of look with your forecast and say, if let's just say an average, you know, multiple widely varies, but let's just say that you could get, you know, a a two and a half times earnings multiple on the 200,000. So I take the 200,000 times 2.5, your business would be worth 500,000. But if I could triple my growth and I could get to 600,000, let's just say I'm worth a three multiple and I would be worth then 600,000 times three would be 1.8 million. So we would ask our clients to say, you know, would you rather run this for 12 more months if you really believe this and exit for 1.8 million or would you rather take $500,000 today? Now, the key point is that we don't answer that question. Some people we might normally think would say, oh, I want to wait, but there might be other circumstances that you say, no, if I could get that money off the table now, I'd rather do that. I don't want to bear the risk. I don't want to borrow more money. So the key second part that we do when we work with people is we relate a forecast to valuation. And literally, you get to see a graph of what your valuation is over time. Um, And that tends to be really helpful because when you see, we've all kind of seen graphs where they have this curve 
where you're, you know, it's going up very, very steep. And then all of a sudden it starts to level off. And the key part is that you generally want to exit right before the level off, because as I'm sure you know, Nate, the things that go up and then level off, what's the first thing a buyer thinks is that it's going to probably start going down. And so, um, so we put a lot of work with our clients into let's really forecast, not just for forecasting sake, but really for valuation modeling sake and being able to understand what is the ideal timing and ideal valuation on your particular business. The cash flow can be challenging. And so getting insight into that from a, a standpoint of, you know, if cash flow wasn't an issue, how could this business grow? You know, using that as kind of the, the data point to then make the decisions moving forward. And so that I, I, and, and you know, let me let me just give you an example on that one. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, um, we had a client that was worth um, about eight hundred thousand dollars and wanted to exit. Um, we put together the forecast uh, uh, for them, and we had to come back to them and we said, you know what, you know, I, I got a blunt question to ask you, but you either don't believe your forecast or you should not sell because your opportunity is so huge that you'd be crazy to sell this business for 800000 um, And so through a couple of conversations, what they said was, I just don't have any more money to grow the company. And so we said, okay, well, if you don't have the money and, and we're, we don't ever like our clients to have to put up personal you know, guarantees or loans uh, because Amazon can be a risky business. So we said, the problem then is, is that you don't have enough cash flow to stock up for your peak season inventory needs. And so what we did then is we said, well, what if we went to the supplier and we got them to finance and it took a, about a week to convince our, our client that we could, you know, renegotiate it and then a week with the supplier. And what we were able to do was renegotiate their terms so that instead of paying 20% down and then 80% 30 days after shipping, we were able to pay 20% down. 30% 60 days after shipping, and then the remaining 50% wasn't due until 150 days after shipping. And I say that not because everybody can do that, but I just want to highlight the point is that once we got the cash flow unconstrained, we grew much more rapidly and we took a company that was maybe worth $800,000 and we were able to make it worth five times as much um, because of the fact that it was then able to grow. So it's an important you know, forget about the numbers and the individual situation, but thinking about the relationship between removing bottleneck, increasing valuation, each seller being able to think about that on, uh, you know, for their own business is critical because in that instance, it would have been crazy to have somebody exit for 800,000 when they could be worth, you know, a lot more than that within just 18 months later. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. And, uh, it was actually leads to the question that I was going to ask is when businesses find themselves in a situation where they see the opportunity to grow, but they, they don't have the cash flow to do that. What some of the options are, I guess, aside from taking out debt. So yeah, you brought up something that, um, you know, we've dove into with some other guests on the show as well. And that I know can be really impactful. And that is getting better terms with your suppliers. 
And so, I mean, it seems that that's likely, I mean, certainly one of the biggest levers you can pull on the cash flow side and what you were able to achieve with that client and the impact it was able to have is massive. And so we'd love if you can kind of dive into that a little bit more. I mean, you mentioned showing them some different projections, but how do you approach those negotiations with your supplier to be able to get those better terms? We've got a defined system, I guess, would be the way that I would describe it, that we've now implemented across, you know, oh, 35, maybe 40 suppliers, somewhere in that range. And that we've kind of found a a few commonalities where usually about 80% of the time, maybe even 90%, we're able to get something better than what someone has today. And, And I think there's a couple of key elements to it that I would strongly recommend. I'm gonna make a little bit of an assumption that you're sourcing overseas in some way because that's the bulk of Amazon sellers, but the principles can apply for onshore as well. But I'll explain that in a bit. The first thing that we do is we build that realistic forecast because in this situation, we have to think like our customer or think like our supplier is the first thing that they need to believe is that if you order all of this inventory that you're going to be able to sell it in the marketplace. Otherwise, they're going to be afraid they're not going to get paid. So we leverage all of the forecasting that we built and uh, and we, in essence, show that here's the market demand for the product. Here's the number of new products we want to roll out that are variations. Here's the, you know, whether you use Helium 10 or some other software to show, you know, predict the demand. And we get the, the supplier to believe the forecast is achievable. And a lot of people skip that step. Uh, and frankly, a lot of times when we work with people, we always ask, you know, have you, you know, asked for better supplier terms? And they say, yes, I have. And I say, did it go something like this? Um, uh, can I get better terms? Uh, no, you can't. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, and, and and what I mean by that is it, it was done maybe not in, in a way of really showing the potential of if we can double or triple the size of our order, then we benefit both of us. So, the first step is getting believable forecasts. We break that down on a per ASIN or SKU basis, on a per daily units basis for each month in the normal season and let's say if it's in the peak season. The second thing that we do once we've got them to believe in that, what that particular forecast is, is we always show the order we can place without terms against the order that we can place with terms. And here's the key part of that is unless if the finance part of the supplier is driving the bus, it's easy to say no. I always refer to it as we've got to find the person with a quota, somebody who's in charge of growth for the company who might be your current contact. But we want to show that we simply don't have enough cash to increase our order. But if we could get 60 or 90 day terms, we would then have the ability to order twice as much because we will start getting our money in from Amazon before we have to start making those final payments. So the second part we always do is we always have a today order and then what we would like to order, even if that means backing down your today order and bumping up your other order a little bit. But we always want to show them the pain of not um, uh, offering the terms. And then the third thing that we do um, is we demand that we have a meeting where we're on video conferencing, even if the English uh, speaking isn't 
you know, I'll call it acceptable. We will, you know, ask them to maybe bring in a translator or something. But what we want is we want them to see you as a real person. So if you've had a number of communications with your suppliers by email or by text, this one, and we ask the, um, uh, you know, the, we'll call it the boss, you know, we ask not only our own contact, but we ask for a meeting with the person that has the authority to make the decision. And we want to be on video conference with them because it's much harder culturally in, in any culture to say no to somebody that is a real person. It just naturally builds credibility. And then what we do is we put that based on the level of uh, English speaking into a very simple, whether it be a little PowerPoint format or even a little one page document. And we walk through, you know, and then at the end of that, we make the ask of what we what we could order if we had better terms. And, and we found that that system, uh, you know, creates the maximum pressure in a positive way by bringing them into the fold. And we actually call it a partner supplier program. We, we introduce, we, we will say to the supplier, we'd like to introduce you as a partner supplier. That means we'll be sharing with you our numbers. You are, or a VIP supplier. Everybody likes being a VIP and, and here's what we would like to offer. And then at the end of that, whatever you get, the way that we think about it, the last step, and I'm going into this in some depth, but it's very important, is see your job as the owner of your company to always be thinking about ways to improve your terms, whether that be if one supplier says no, do I need to look at other suppliers? They say uh, maybe they can't offer it right now. Ask them if they could offer it during the holidays or your summer peak season and think of it as a process, not an event. A lot of people will get the initial no and they don't just sort of stick with it as they're growing. Uh, and as you grow, you always want to be thinking about that and think about the relationship, frankly, between cash flow and profitability. You know, is it better even to pay a little bit more, pay a, a 1% finance charge to get 90 days? You know, a lot of people would say, sure, uh, I'd be happy to do that. So that's the process that we use. And, and it seemed to, as I said, have about an 80% success rate. Thank you for breaking that down. That's super informative and, and yeah, re really important. And, and again, I want to highlight a, a couple things that you brought up. And this is one that you also mentioned when it came to talking about the actual, the, the sale, really keeping the end customer in mind with the exit, talking about the buyer. And when you're talking about dealing with the factories, you know, and trying to get better terms, you know, the customer, I think in this instance is going to be the, the factory. And so, you know, really, and presenting the situation to them, showing them why it's better for them and how it's good for them. People care about themselves and it's not. And, and so when you frame these things in a way and show them of how it's going to, how it will benefit them, you know, showing them the projections of like, all right, look, if you can help us, here's how much more we can order from you versus the baseline. On that, like what type of terms do you generally push for or do you have like a I don't know you, you know if the if the standard is 30 30 down 70 at completion is there a standard of what you kind of ask for or is it always just sort of you know anything better than where you're at is going to be an improvement yeah. So I, I think the lesson that I would say that I've learned, not just in this topic, but in general, is that one of the most important aspects of negotiating is what I will refer to as the story behind the negotiations, 
not just asking for a better number, okay? And so the, the reason you, what you want to be doing is thinking about it. So let's just say, for example, you're a highly seasonal uh, business around the holidays, okay? And you place your order in August, okay? So that, you know, it gives you 30 days for them to make it, 30 days for them to ship it. So you got stuff by the end of October for the holidays. The story is a lot of people will think to say that the next payment should actually come in 30 days or in 60 days after shipping, okay? The way that we come into that story and came into that story is we said, if I place a payment in August, I am essentially broke until my deposit from Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So the next payment that I can make and really, really dramatically increase the size of my order is December 15th. So that was the reason why when we placed an order um, and it was going to ship in uh, October, we needed the next payment to be 60 days after uh, uh, shipping because if it was shipping in October, I don't have money until December. It was easy for us to then say we want to pay the remaining 30% in uh, December. And then the answer to why we you know, pushed the last payment out until March of the following year was if we're ordering something that's highly seasonable and we're uh, we want to order a lot, um, we might not sell it all in the holidays, but we don't want to run out uh, during the holidays. We we may need January and February sale to make the remaining payment. Okay. Mm. So the key point in that was that it was the story that made sense. And then the ability to three or four X the order, because we said, Hey, if you can offer these terms, we literally can take $200,000 and, and order five times the amount of product because we don't have to come up. We only have 20% down, you know, uh, if we have to pay. And when we got into the negotiations back and forth, of course, the supplier asked, could you make a payment in October? or could you make a payment in November? And it was very easy for us to say to them and they believed it because it was like, you know, we're as, you know, and we joke about saying it broke, but you know, we, we don't have that cash back yet until the holidays. So mm -hmm. I, I would say that's the fundamentals of negotiations that I would focus people on. And it kind of leads to the next, you know, a topic would be is when we're negotiating with a buyer, what are those, you know, similar fundamentals? What is the story that we're asking the buyer to believe when we're actually trying to sell the company? It's the exact same thing that you do with a supplier. And so if you have a different, let's say you're not negotiating for peak season, um, you have to think about, you know, is the story that I want to add five more new products and so I need better cash flow. But I would say work from the story and work from the fundamentals of the numbers in a spreadsheet where they really believe them, not just kind of saying, hey, we want to order twice as much, but getting them to believe what the story is and then the negotiating from fall from there. Now, does that normally we like to start with um, whenever I get my cash from Amazon? That's kind of mm -hmm. our starting spot, right? Okay. If, you know, so if it takes 30 days to ship and it takes 30 days to sell, well, then that's 60. If it takes 60 days to sell and, you know, you know, so we kind of base it on if you, if you, if you knew that you got your money from Amazon before you had to pay your supplier, uh, and, and of course you might have to put some down, but I'm talking about the bulk of it. Um, uh, you know, I'd rather pay, you know, 20% down and 80%, you know, when I get my money from Amazon, than pay 10% down and have an interim payment of 40% because I'm still out 50% of my cash before I get turned it into uh, cash back from Amazon. Mm -hmm. Putting together a believable narrative and you're not just arbitrarily asking for these things or asking for getting payments pushed back. There's an actual reason and getting them to understand what those reasons are 
So this has been really, really good talking about the, let's say like the, the first part, you know, in the exit process, you know, solving cash flow, being able to grow the business with your projections to get more money. So how do you approach with, with the businesses that you work with, like, you know, the actual exit or going to market? And is that something that you help with at Northbound or do you work with other brokers on that? Or yeah, kind of explain like, you know, when the business, like, all right, they're, they're ready to sell. Absolutely. Uh, And probably the heart of what we do is helping people achieve the highest valuations for their company. So uh, that's a combination of preparation and, you know, and then negotiation and and those types of things. So I I think the first thing that I will uh, do is help people. If you've, um, if you've prepared your business correctly, we, we talked about some of the topics that we've got there. The next part of it then is the, what do I need to do before I go to market? And then how do I negotiate the best deal for myself? So in the area of what do I need to do before I go to market, there are things, you know, that you can help with uh, that we've talked about, you know, get your numbers in order, you know, those types of things. We, we also can uh, help in that regard. The one key thing we always focus on is that people need to understand the difference between how buyers will calculate a business and how they value it. And, and here's the terms that I'll use. The buyers will calculate a business based on the trailing 12 months earnings, which would be, let's call it three times your 500,000 of last year earnings would mean your business is worth 1.5 million. The key part we focus on is that really that is not how buyers value a business. The way that buyers value a business is on something we call the buyer's effective multiple. And what that means is it's how much is the earnings going to be in the 12 months going forward or the 24 months going forward compared with the price that I paid. And I think that's a huge concept and it's a huge Mm -hmm. misconception in the industry because everybody will say, well, they don't pay based on future earnings, you know, buyers. I only pay based on historical earnings. And to a certain extent, that is true, but here's where it diverges. If I have two businesses that are making $500,000 a year in the last 12 months, and one of them is growing at 100% a year, and the other one is flat, the pure math of it is that they're going to pay a higher multiple for the one that is doubling their growth rate than the one that is not. And, and, And the reality is all of the money you've made in the past is a proof point but it is irrelevant because they don't get any of that money. (laughs) The only money they get to see is they get to see what's the profit of this business going forward. So the fundamental thing you have to think about in order to get the highest valuation from your company is being able to show the buyer that the buyer's effective multiple is low or meets what's called their return rate. So in that exact example, if I've got 500,000 of earnings, but I'm doubling because I've got a lot of new product launches coming on out there, um, even if you um, get a buyer to agree to a five multiple, which would be a very you know nice multiple for that size business, uh, you know, be you know, uh, some people would say not heard of, but if in the next year they're going to make a million dollars, their effective multiple was only a 2.5 multiple. 
because of the fact that they paid 2.5 million for something and it generated, you know, a million dollars within the 12 months that they owned it. So once you establish the effective valuation of the company, then you get into the negotiation of the transaction itself. And are you willing to take more cash at closing or would you be willing to go for a higher multiple and maybe have some of it at risk in the form of what's called an earnout or sometimes in the form of what's called equity, rolled equity in the new company. And so what I think the key part to maximizing valuation is when you understand your numbers and your growth rates and where you're going, you can then speak in the language. And that's really what we do at Northbound is that we speak in the language in our valuation modeling system. We build a buyer analysis uh, of a transaction and we show them that even if you pay this um, you know four times multiple for this particular business or five times multiple for this business because of the strength of the business and the growth rate and the profitability of it your effective return on your investment is going to be a very good one and and it shows up in a lower buyer effective multiple and it also can show up in you know that eventually shows up in what's called a higher internal rate of return for the buyer um, and, and and so I think that's the key part that I think a lot of people get locked into the mindset that thinking that this is going to be something that is simply based on my trailing earnings. And, and that's true from a calculation. I call that, that's like telling me that it's in Fahrenheit or it's in Celsius. That's not telling you how hot it is outside. You need to look at what the future potential is for the buyer and frankly, be able to, we describe that in a very compelling way to the buyer um, as part of the way through the negotiation process. Mm-hmm makes sense and seems consistent with, you know, I think one of the themes that has come up through this conversation of really framing it with the end user in mind and how you're able to show them. And it's not as much about what the seller is selling, it's what the buyer is getting and framing it in that way as much as possible. Uh, And so with Northbound, are you preparing the valuation and materials and then are, are you actually going out and finding the buyers or do you kind of put the package together and then working with other brokers on finding buyers or both or? We are not a broker. We work with brokers in the industry. Many names you know, uh, probably people that have been on maybe previous podcasts, those types of things. So we are an extension of a seller's management team. And, and, and what I mean by that is our job is to, if you if you had to put a title behind what we do, we are for an Amazon seller an outsource chief financial officer and an outsource what's called corporate development advisor or M&A advisor. So we see ourselves as, and this gets to probably one of the key, key parts that I can't stress enough. Your job when you're exiting your business as a CEO is two things. Number one, nobody can sell the enthusiasm of your business as good as you can. A broker can't, I can't. You need to own the excitement about what your business brings. We can justify the value probably, I'll call it maybe better than what you can because we can speak the language of the buyers because we do that every, you know, every day, but nobody can communicate that enthusiasm. And then your second job is to make sure that your numbers continue to get better through the lifetime of the deal. And in order to do that, it takes a lot of work to sell a company. And if you're spending 15, 20 hours a week doing it yourself, that's taking time away from new product launches 
as maybe you forget and you run out of stock. Um, uh, but the key point that you've got to do is keep the numbers coming in and coming in stronger. We, in essence, parachute in as a deal team and we are negotiating resources. We are finance resources. We actually have a full-time person that all they do is help you gather up all of what's called the due diligence materials for your company to, in essence, keep you working on the business and growing the business while we're working on the exit. And then we then work with brokers or investment bankers uh, that uh, um, help from the buy side that they will look to bring the buyers to the table. So now that's not to say that we haven't had um, uh, clients that have gone to market and they, you know, already had a buyer or it was somebody that we knew. But the bulk of what we're doing is working in team uh, with a uh, broker and or an investment banker. And the combination of the two of us is what helps you get the highest valuation for your company. Very cool. I, I, I like that. And so you're really, you know, an extension of the seller's team and working with them to tidy up the business, get the max valuation, and then, you know, get it to the point where uh, a handoff to the broker who's able to take this maximized, optimized, well buttoned up, you know, business, um, as well as like, you know, narrative around the business to then take it to find the buyer's and the, and the only thing I'll say on that is it's less of a handoff and more of a team approach in that we're there all the way up through the um, the closing of the transaction. So we help with reviewing the legal documents. We we, we kind of we sit within the company all the way through the transaction. So uh, you know we we don't hand it off to the broker. We uh, work in conjunction with them because there's different roles. They've got to go out there and manage multiple buyers, and those buyers have questions you know throughout the life of the deal, and, and then. And when they get down to the one buyer, there's negotiations back and forth and updated financials that are being requested. And then there's always that hard meeting of, um, you know, how do we push to get what we feel is the fair value for the company while having the risk that the buyer might walk away. And we're mm -hmm. presenting a lot of the financial models that then justify that valuation. So, uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, I would say, you know, um, we're very friendly and close with the brokers and investment bankers in the industry for that reason, because, uh, we, we kind of stick on all the way through the transaction would be, you know, the last step sure. in our deliverable is the closing celebration. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, yeah, staying on and, you know, keeping that experience and knowledge that you have at this point with the business you've been working with for, you know, months, if not longer to, you know, close it, close it home. And so just kind of a, a few final questions before, before wrapping up. And I mean, this has been, been really useful. I know a lot of great value that, you know, people can, should be able to apply to, you know, improve their business and cash flow and valuations. What's like, are some of the mistakes you see businesses making as they prepare for an exit? Big ones we see uh, getting distracted. So, for example, we see a lot of people will maybe say, "Oh, you know, I need to diversify and have my own website uh, and run Facebook traffic." And so they'll lose their eye on the ball and they'll spend a lot of money on tools and you know paid media and all of that stuff is not adding to the bottom line. So be very cautious. You know, if you're you know if you're in beauty and you have a fifty dollar a month recurring product, that's uh, might work. But you know, for a lot of Amazon 
sellers. If you're selling a $30 product that you make, you know, 10 bucks on, you just can't drive the traffic. So try not to get distracted and really focus on the things that are important. The other one we call it is uh, a year before you sell, really focus on what we call five for one, which is squeezing every bit of profitability out of the business before you go to market. And, and it's a key one, you know, don't ship by air, uh, don't run out of stock, you know, and, and think about every dollar that you save. So if I can save $10,000 uh, by, you know, not having three or four software tools that I really don't need, that $10,000 is $10,000 in my pocket. But if I sell for a three or a four multiple, that is actually thirty or forty thousand dollars increase in my valuation. So the, the key thing I would really focus everybody on. A big mistake we see is people that run out of stock, even a half a month. You know, you run out for two weeks and you lose, you know, twenty thousand dollars worth of profits. You just cost yourself a hundred thousand dollars on your valuation. So we call that our five implement five for one thinking. The other mistakes that we see is um, that people oftentimes uh, will take their foot off the gas and they won't innovate in new products. And, and the key part, hopefully this forecasting conversation and this buyer's effective multiple is um, will, will help you understand that buyers need to see some more gas in the tank and that they don't, they need to really see future growth. So if all your products are mature, you might think, oh, I just don't want to have to go innovate and bring out new products to market. That not only will get you a lower valuation, it might make your business unsellable. Um, and the analogy I'd make at that, we've all seen those highlight clips where the person's running the race and they think they've got it won and then they kind of let off the gas and, and then somebody sneaks up and wins the race. So we see that mistake um, a lot of time. Um, and then probably the the last one that I'll you know, really highlight here is that you have to think from the lens of uh, the buyer and what risk that they're willing to take on. And so be very careful about things. You know, we all understand it's hard to comply with all of Amazon's terms of service, but a buyer is going to do due diligence and ask you about everything that you've ever done. I always say it's like if you, in order to get your high school diploma, if you had to uh, uh, show up at your graduation ceremony with a list of everything that you did wrong that you had to tell your parents about. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Um, um, uh, they will find out. Uh, and so if you've used some techniques that maybe have gotten you to where you're going, think about whether or not those techniques, if you were to try and explain them to a buyer on a disclosure schedule, whether or not you would buy that company. Um, uh, and it's not for me to pick. It's just for you to recognize that a buyer is going to look at everything that's been done within a company and, and, and analyze it. And don't get caught um, being so aggressive that you've built a nice business, but an unsettling business. And, and we do see that mistake uh, where things will kind of fail in due diligence. And maybe it helped you get going, but maybe there's a, a better way to, you know, to keep the growth going now that you've gotten up to a certain size and scale. Um, mm -hmm. And then the last part, I would just say, uh, and, and obviously we're here to help people do it, but it's a very difficult process to do on your own. So bring together an expert team. You know, for example, we only use mergers and acquisition specific law firms. So 
they know how to negotiate a deal, you know, make sure that we've got, you know, the right tax accountants to help you on the tax planning, make sure that you've got people around you that are going to look at every last bit of every legal document and make sure that you're represented, um, you know, aggressively and appropriately. So that's the other one we see because inevitably, you know, those things can come back to bite you in terms of not being able to sell the company or frankly, after you sell the company, maybe having an exposure where what's called a clawback, where the buyer can claw back into you and, and get some of the purchase price back, which is obviously never a fun thing to have happen. So I think those are the biggies that we see that are mistakes uh, that, you know, that, uh, you know, we try and proactively work with our clients to, to make sure we can avoid them. With that, there's been um, a, a ton of value here. I think we covered a lot. Uh, want to be respectful of, of your time. And yeah, just really honestly, thank you for, for coming on and sharing. And, and it's been really cool to understand more about what you guys do, how you approach things. Uh, and I know this is something a lot of businesses can really benefit from. And so yeah, please share with the listeners uh, how they can get in touch if they are interested in more info or find out more about what you do with uh, Northbound Group. And my last comment, I'll, I'll start with, uh, um, uh, I'll end with where I started, which is that um, for everybody here, more than 50% of the value of your company, of the money you ever put in your pocket will come likely when you exit, maybe 60, maybe 70%. So I always ask when I'm presenting in a group, in a room, I say, if that's true, how many people here are spending more than one hour a week strategically planning to make it happen? And obviously, for a lot of people, there's not very many hands that go up. So I can't emphasize that enough. Generally is the path to wealth building. So uh, appreciate being able to come on, uh, Nate. Certainly enjoyed the conversation. And if folks want to reach out to us to learn more about the valuation modeling systems we do or, or, or the capabilities that we have, uh, northboundgroup.com, which is this uh, N-O-R-T-H-B-O-U-N-D-G-R-O-U-P, northboundgroup.com. And if you have individual questions, uh, I'm always available at Scott Dietz at northboundgroup.com. And my name is S-C-O-T-T. And then last name, D-E-E-T-Z. And just have it all together. Scott Dietz at northboundgroup.com. I'm like you, uh, Nate. I'm very passionate about this topic and helping sellers. So, uh, you know, always happy to um, have myself or somebody in our staff uh, answer uh, individual questions that people might have. Scott, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, we'll have all the uh, the contact info and stuff in the show notes as well to make it easy for the listeners. Hope we can meet up back in, in Minneapolis sometime in the not so distant future. <laughs> that sounds great, Nate. Uh, thanks a lot. Take care. This has been the Ecom Exits podcast with Nate Ginsberg. If you're enjoying the Ecom Exits podcast, show your support by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help other smart entrepreneurs find us. We appreciate your support. We have a new episode every week on the Ecom Exits podcast. So, catch you next time. <laughs>